Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The House of Commons gets back down to business in Ottawa today. I'm very grateful you could take the time. Mr. O'Toole, thank you for coming on today. It's great to be back with you, Mike. Okay, let's talk about the rules, the new rules on the on Parliament Hill right now. All MPs must be vaccinated or have received an approved medical exemption. Will all your MPs be there today? Yes. Yeah, obviously, there'll be one or two little exceptions. You saw one of our MPs from Quebec came down with COVID. He was doubly vaccinated. Um, the Senate sadly lost a senator last week from COVID. She had a pre-existing condition. She had been doubly vaccinated. So our workplace will follow all public health guidance and all of our MPs are ready to get to work. And we always said we would follow that guidance. Okay, speaking of the one MP, the one Conservative MP who actually came down with COVID, Quebec MP Richard Lahoe, uh, he was fully vaccinated, I understand, uh, still got COVID. Have any of your of your other MPs are, are any of them self-isolating because they came in contact with him? Or No, no we, are, we immediately started working with the, the medical authorities uh, and the sergeant arms here on Parliament Hill to make sure we followed everything to the letter. It's very similar. You know, the Ottawa senators have been going through a similar thing. There's 16 schools in Ottawa with, uh, with COVID outbreaks and cases. So what you have to do is follow the guidance to the letter to make sure that uh, if, if anyone is at risk, um, that, that they isolate or get tested. The fortunate thing is when you get vaccination rates so high, Mike, the, the risks are, are more minimal. So uh, Mr. LaHue, who's one of our older MPs, is, is, is doing okay. Minor symptoms, probably because he's vaccinated and it, it keeps the symptoms lower. But it shows we have to be vigilant with masks and everything else and, and all of our MPs are ready to go. And we're, it's about time we get back. It's been over two right. months since, uh, since uh, the election and we're here to, to fight for Canadians. So all of your MPs are vaccinated or is it a combination of vaccinated and, and medical exemptions that have been granted? We, we follow the rules. So there'll be vaccinations and there might be a few medical exemptions. Um, we've, this has been independently run. The Parliament Hill has physicians and nurses as well as the sergeant at arms that's been running the process. And as you know, Mike, because we've talked about it, I've always tried to say, get vaccinated. If you have any questions, yeah. get them answered because it's the best tool. And I've, I've always respected people, uh, people having their personal control over their health. But we have to get as many people vaccinated as possible. And I'm, I'm glad that RMPs will be ready to go today and hold the government to account for, for what, inflation and the crisis we're facing. What about your uh, BCMP Mark Strahl, Chilliwack Hope, who posted on Twitter yesterday that he will not be in Ottawa today. He's staying behind to provide assistance in Chilliwack Hope uh, because of the landslides and the flooding. Is he away with your permission? 
Well, let's look, the situation in BC is horrendous. Uh, I've been in regular contact with our BC MPs, including Mark last night. Mark's re- meeting with uh, regional authorities from Chilliwack and Hope today to get an update. We're going to be bringing forward a, an emergency debate with the return of Parliament. I wrote the Prime Minister on Friday with respect to our requests. We need to work together. So Mark is in the heat of it, as is, of course, Ed Fast in Abbotsford and, and Brad Viss in Mission. So our, our, our team is on, on the ground there, and I think Mark staying back to, to meet with officials and get the up-to-date assessment is, is a way we're showing a commitment to the communities we serve. Oh, okay, as it happens, he's been one of the most outspoken critics of the vaccine mandate. So is he vaccinated or and or have received a medical exemption to be not vaccinated? Do you know? He, he's ready to go. You know, okay. the situation in BC, Mike, as you know, is pretty unparalleled. I, I think this will be probably the biggest long-term infrastructure cleanup after a natural disaster in our history. So that is why Mark is holding back. Um, I've always said we have to be, as public officials, not only meeting but exceeding public health guidance and and making sure we answer questions if people are, are, are having hesitancy about vaccines. I think we can get even more people vaccinated if we don't turn this into a divisive issue. Okay, let me ask you about speaking of the disasters here in British Columbia and you're calling for an emergency debate. Uh, can you expand on that? Why do you want an emergency debate right now? Well, listen, I know um, I uh, left a message for Mayor Braun from Abbotsford yesterday and we'll be lining up today. I know how busy he has been, but we've already been told the dikes are insufficient uh, for for that area of, of the valley. And we need to make sure that we have an immediate and long-term commitment to resiliency infrastructure and to better national management of national disasters. We had both of those commitments, Mike, in our election platform. We didn't win the election. We won the popular vote, but we're going to continue to push for those issues. And resiliency, we can lower emissions from climate change, uh, but we already see the climate changing. We see higher instances of of century-type storms, these sorts of things. We need to make sure infrastructure like dikes are up to standard. So that'll be a big part of it. I also asked the Prime Minister to continue to make this nonpartisan. All levels of government, all parties should get the same briefing so that we can all be on the same page. You're a military guy. You had a career in the military. A lot of people have commented over the last week that it's unfortunate that the Canadian Forces Base Chilliwack was shut down many years ago. When you think about the the military personnel that could have been deployed immediately to help in this disaster, looking back at, at that decision now, do you think that was a strategic blunder to close that military base in Chilliwack? 100%. Yeah, that was the Liberal government of, of Jean Chrétien. If you notice where they closed bases, it was in communities that they didn't hold at the time. I trained at Chilliwack. All basic uh, training for officers were done there. It was a center for engineers. We need that capacity in critical parts of our country to respond to, to, to issues like this. So I really do think we all want to thank our men and women of the Canadian Armed Forces. I saw our cormorant helicopters plucking people off of highways, helping people. We're really proud of what they do. We need to make sure that they're there to serve all Canadians. And I want folks in B.C. to know you're never going to be cut off from this country. We're going to have your back. Would, would a conservative government reopen a, mili- a permanent military base in B.C.? That's well, I think we never should have given up Chilliwack. I do think there is there is a need for us to have a longer-term permanent presence of of ground forces and, and military in the Lower Mainland, yes. Manner of where we do it, 
Um, there still is a little engineering facility in, in Chilliwack, but not a permanent base. That would be something we'd be committed to looking at. Speaking to Federal Conservative Leader Aaron O'Toole as the House of Commons gets back down to business today, let me ask you about the, the threats to your leadership of the party. We had Senator Denise Batters has been expelled now from the Conservative Caucus after speaking out against you, a Conservative Senator. Um, what, is the, what is the status of your leadership right now? I mean, are, are, you, are you determined right now to lead the Conservative Party into another election? Yes, Mike, I'll be leading our party into the next election, which could be in 18 months, could be in two years. And we were close to winning the election. The only reason we didn't was the return of COVID and the division caused by Mr. Trudeau, by Mr. Bernier. And we need to focus on those gains. Ms. Batters is not elected. Uh, Our elected caucus, who just faced the electorate, know what we need to do, know that we were close to winning. We were 10 points down before the election began. And we almost won, but for the divisive nature of the pandemic. That's why Mr. Trudeau called it. Our MPs are united. We're going to hold the Liberals to account on inflation, on a lack of direction, on our failing U.S. relationship, on on overall putting their own narrow interests ahead of the national interest. And our caucus with the Reform Act that I asked them to vote for has the ability to also make sure that they have confidence in their leader, which they do. We need to focus on the Liberals, not on frustrations from the last election. Would, would you say that she was called, you expelled her after she called for a, a review of your leadership? Would And, and under the, the terms of the, the Constitution of the Federal Conservative Party, you face a mandatory leadership review anyway, coming up, but not until 2023. Given the questions that are out there, would, would you be willing to submit yourself to a leadership review right now just to put it all to, all to rest? I did in our first meeting, Mike, when I asked our caucus to have a review mechanism within the Reform Act. So our elected members of Parliament have that at their disposal. We already have a review on the election itself where we have to learn the lessons from what went right, what went wrong. We're also contacting all of our members as part of that exercise and at our next convention. There's an opportunity for a vote as well. Where we need to focus our attention is on the Liberals. Of course, the Liberals are spreading this message that we need, we need to make it all about the opposition because they don't want to be held to account. They don't want to see the progress we made continue. What we need to do is learn the lessons, refocus, and win the trust of more Canadians. Last question for you. You've said that all of your MPs are either fully vaccinated or they've received that approved medical exemption and you're ready to get back down to work under the existing rules there on the House on the uh, Parliament Hill. You've also said, though, that you uh, you were opposed, right? You were opposed to that mandatory vaccination rule for MPs. Is that still your position? Or are you intending to fight the, that rule? No, I'm glad you asked that question, Mike, because you're incorrect. I was opposed oh. to how it was presented. You can't have a committee of seven MPs making decision for the whole House of Commons. So the way that was done, it was more of the divisive stunts of the Liberal Party. They ran an election on this, on these sort of stunts about vaccines. The House of Commons makes its own rules for the conduct of its members, the, the how the House sits. You cannot have a secret group of seven making a rule that affects 338. So our objection, Mike, and I still have that objection, is to how that was done. It shows no respect for our democracy, but that's par for the course with Justin Trudeau, who has basically shown contempt for Canadians through the virtual parliaments, through the We Charity scandal prorogation. We're going to hold them to account, but MPs, all of them, should have a say on rules for the House. 
I'll let you get to work. Thanks for taking the time today. Appreciate it. Good chatting with you, Mike. Be well. So let's talk about the terrible flooding in the Sumas Prairie region in Abbotsford and the desperate race to repair the broken dikes in the area. You've got engineers, contractors, Canadian Armed Forces personnel all working around the clock to try and shore up them that broken infrastructure. Let's check in with Tyler Olson now, reporter at Fraser Valley Current, and he's done a great job covering this story. Tyler, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Hey, Tyler, can you give me an update on where we're at with the uh, the effort to repair the dike there? Well, I heard from Abbotsford Mayor Henry Brown yesterday, and he, he spoke about them, and we got images of the the largest gap in that one dike being closed, which is huge because it's, uh, it was like a 100-yard, 100-meter-long gap, which is like the length of a football field. Uh, so they, they, they've closed that. Now they have to start shoring that up because it needs to be it needs to be able to withstand water as it as it comes in because we're not done with the winter yet. So that's closed. There's another breach that's been closed, so that's good news. That'll help water continue to flow out the floodgates towards the Fraser River. The Sumas Prairie is in kind of two sections, so all the waters that's in the the lake bed down below the dike still has to get pumped out. But anything above on the on the north, the western side, can start to flow out to the Fraser River via gravity. Yeah, no, it's an it's been an amazing effort, and it's been a round the clock effort to to get that done. So, our, I guess we're very fortunate that the rain has held off for for the most part with those water levels in the Fraser continuing to drop. What happens if we get a ton more rain? If we get a ton more rain, I I, I don't know. I'm not an engineer. One would suspect that that it will slow things. I'm not sure if it reverses things. I'm, I'm again. It, it probably depends on the quantity of the rain and how things are looking elsewhere in the in the valley and even in the interior, since Fraser River drains such a huge portion of the province. Yeah, you've done a great job following the the issues around that dike and the failure of the dike, which had been predicted in the past, right? Can you talk a little bit about some of the uh, the work you've done on that? Yeah, well, I've been covering the region for a long time. And in 2016, the Fraser Basin Council uh, was tasked with, and the province hired contractors to look at the dikes all around the region as part of kind of a planning process to ideally start protecting the communities. And that that process found the Sumas Dike, it was about two feet too low that it got the lowest, its crest, so its height got the lowest grade, which was unacceptable, one out of four. And the the inspector said that it wasn't going to be large enough if the Nooksacks built its banks, and so that's what what happened. And wow. I guess the disturbing thing is that that the Sumas Dike failed. Is not only that though; it's that this dike is like the state of this dike is incre- incredibly common around the region. It's it's not like an outlier. There, it's not that they weren't didn't have their eye on the right ball. There's too many of these balls that are in the air and that need to be fixed, and it's going to cost a lot of money to upgrade them to the point where they might be able, be able to stop an even bigger flood from the Fraser. Yeah, you had an incredible Twitter thread the other day talking about your efforts to try and interview some officials, key officials in the province in the province about the state of these dikes and how you got the runaround. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and compare that to the accessibility of these officials south of the border in Washington state. It seems like it's a different world there in terms of like the accountability of these officials in the United States compared to here. 
Yeah, and I think this is something that any reporter here in in BC and even across Canada has dealt with. In that, if you want to speak to somebody, an expert on one of the things they're an expert on, and in this case, it was in February, I was looking to speak to the inspector of dikes about the flood protections against a Nooksack overflow in relation to a story I'd started working on actually revolving, revolving around Mount Baker. But um, I'd, I'd asked to speak to the inspector of Vikes and essentially was told in very polite speak that he was unavailable or he wasn't available at the time. And I said, I can make myself available anytime. So whenever he is available, I am willing to speak. And then I kind of never heard back. And this this is basically the the general what you generally get. I was kind of tilting at windmills there. I knew there, what I was going to get back. I knew it was going to probably not be fulfilled because this is kind of the this is what happens when you ask to speak to an expert or somebody who isn't a communications prof- uh, uh, person or a politician. In the government of BC, I think we've seen this with COVID. We've seen this with other issues too. That the people who are supposedly the spokespeople is what the government always wants to put forward. But those people aren't experts. They can't yeah. have a conversation about how the dikes might fail and, and contingencies and things like that. Tyler, you've done a great job on it. Thank you for coming on today. Appreciate it. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or Zepbound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. An amazing story of survival. Now, my guest, Chelsea Lynn, she was driving on Highway 7 last weekend when her car was hit by a mudslide during those torrential rains. Happily, thankfully, she is here to share the story with her now. Chelsea, thank you for doing this. Yeah, thank you, Mike. It's uh, definitely going to be a story that I will be sharing with my children and my grandchildren. Yeah, and I'm sure it was a very frightening and traumatic experience for you, so I'm, I'm grateful for you talking about it. So let's go back to last Sunday. So that was a week ago yesterday. Where were you driving when this happened? Yeah, I was, um, I was heading home from Summerland visiting one of my best friends. Um, I was about an hour outside of Hope heading toward Agassiz on Highway 7, and um, out of the corner of my eye, I see this tree starting to fall, and it was far enough up the mountain, and I didn't really have time to process it. And then all of a sudden, my car was hit by the mudslide and um, pushed off the highway, and, and me and about four other cars were careened into this uh, swamp uh, about a kilometer off the road. And then I realized that my car had stopped moving, and I was kind of in shock and scared to move because I was sure that I was injured, and I just didn't feel it yet. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so did you see this this mudslide coming towards your vehicle, or did you sort of start feeling your vehicle moving, or how did that happen? No, I just started feeling... I, I heard the sound at first. I almost thought that a car had crashed into me. My, my first thought, I, I was like, oh, what the heck? Like, I was quite confused. Um, and then I realized, I don't even know what it was. I... I just stopped moving, and then I, I couldn't see anything. There was just a bunch of debris around my windows, and 
Um, and then I started looking for my phone and I put my hand down by my feet and I was about a foot uh, in water and I realized my car was filling up and I didn't know how quickly and, um, and yeah, and, and I, I had to act fast. I was able to get through to 911 and I did contact someone um, quite, quite quickly, let them know that we were there um, and I was able to get my seatbelt off um, after almost not being able to. So again, the importance of keeping a seatbelt cutter close to your driver's side that you can access in the uh, event of an emergency. Um, I was able to get my seatbelt off and climb through uh, my sunroof because a tree had fallen right on top of my car and, and just smashed the sunroof in, which is good because it created an opening for me. And then I sat on top of the tree on my car for about five and a half hours. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so you were traveling alone, right? I was alone, yeah. Yeah. And did you say you, you had to cut yourself out of the, out of the vehicle like where you, you couldn't get your seatbelt undone? Is that right? No, I I almost couldn't, and then the button did work. So I was just emphasizing the importance of of having a seatbelt cutter close in in case um, the button doesn't work and and you find yourself trapped. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Okay, speaking to Chelsea Lynn about her experience getting caught in that landslide on Highway 7. So is it possible for you to put into words, like, what you were feeling? I mean, this must have been terrifying. Like, what was going through your mind then? I think I was just in complete survival mode. I was just running on pure adrenaline. Um, I didn't really have time to be scared. I was scared, but um, I, in the after the initial impact, my first thought was just getting out of my car, um, getting somewhere dry, which evidently it was raining, so we didn't really find that. But um, but it, we were out of the out of the sinking car, and and it was it was very scary. Yeah, but um. But I, I have been incredibly blessed in this. And one thing that one thing that has become extremely evident to me in the last week is just how many incredible people I have in my life and all these strangers that are reaching out and, and just so grateful that me and the eight other people that walked out of there, that we were all okay. And, and it's just, it's it's been a very humbling experience. Okay, so you were able to get out of your vehicle through the sunroof, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, and how did you get through there? Um, the tree had fallen on my car and broke the sunroof, so I kind of shimmied between the, the sunroof and the tree and, oh. and sat on the top of the tree. Oh, man. And how much how much water and mud had filled up in your vehicle? Um, at the point of impact, it was about a foot deep, but oh. um, by the time search and rescue got there, the water was above the back um, uh, the blinker light above the back brake light, so it had it had risen a, a, a couple of feet over the hours that we were sitting there. Right, and you mentioned there there were some other people in the area, right? So these were people that were traveling in other vehicles that also got hit in the same slide. Yes, that's correct. Um, there was a car right behind my car. The nose of their car was right to the bumper of my car, and, and it was a group of four students traveling back to UBC where they went to school. Um, I couldn't believe it. They, none of them had a jacket either. I was also jacketless, um, and none of them were wearing shoes and we were all very, very cold, but I was extremely grateful to have a group of human beings close to me so that we could, um, talk and I could just see them. Right. So what did you do then? You, you mentioned that you got on top of your vehicle or did you walk out of there? Did you just wait for help or what happened next? No, we, um, we got on top of our vehicles, uh, and we were instructed to stay put and wait for help. We didn't uh, know how stable the land was at that point. Um, and what other kind of debris was around us. Um, so we were instructed to stay there and the initial plan was that once search and rescue was able to safely get 
to us. They were going to hike up some ropes and kind of help us over the debris. But when the team got there, they realized that all of the trees had been taken out by the slide. Um, and so we ended up having to walk out and, and get into the swamp and, and walk through the mud. Oh, and were there were there first responders there at that point helping you? Or were you by yourself there? Um, yes, they, they got there. Um, oh. I believe it was about quarter to one uh, in the oh. morning, so about 1245. And the slide hit us just after 7 p.m. Wow, so you're talking like over five hours later. Yeah, it was yeah. it was like a it was a I've worked serving shifts shorter than that. <laughs> oh man. And you mentioned you didn't have a jacket. These other UBC students that were with you had no shoes on. I mean, yeah. you guys must have been freezing. Yeah, it was it was pretty unreal. I just remember having to consciously relax my body because my muscles were just convulsing and seizing and my quads had Charlie horsed and I was just stretching out my legs and just coming back to my breath and taking deep breaths so that I wouldn't panic and trying to calm my heart and, and just control what I could control, which was my experience in that um, and, and just do the best that I could. Right. And then did you, were you able to get back up to the highway or how did you get out of there? Um, there was a little like side road, kind of like a side dirt road off to our left. Um, and we, the search and rescue team, once they got there, um, they helped us navigate through all the debris. And we went back to, I believe it was that side road where they had a bunch of um, search and they had uh, fire trucks and paramedic vans and RCMP waiting for us. They were very prepared and well equipped and they fed us and got us dry clothes. And yeah, they were, they were really incredible. And did you did you get home that day, or did you go to a hospital, or what happened after that? Um, we they took us to Chilliwack General Hospital. We were all assessed for minor injuries, which is pretty miraculous. Um, oh. And my dad picked me up. Uh, actually, when I was sitting on top of my car, I had gotten a hold of one of the uh, Agassiz RCMP department, and I was speaking to a gentleman, Corey, who was absolutely incredible. Um, and he was able to call my dad on another line and connected our calls. So I was able to talk to my dad when I was sitting on top of my car. Oh um, my and goodness. he was prepared to pick me up at Chilliwack Hospital when we got there, yeah. All right, just last question for you, Chelsea. You mentioned that after going through this traumatic experience, you it's given you, what, like a new appreciation for everything you have in your life? Like, just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think that... Um, it's almost like for for quite a few days after the accident, I was I think I was running on adrenaline, and it felt like I was just talking about something that had happened to somebody else. Um, but it really has opened me up to. I mean, if it was my time, it, there was ample opportunity for me to go, and and I just I'm just stunned that I walked out of there okay. And yeah, I, I think that um, that this life is is a gift and it's meant to be lived and it kind of makes you reevaluate the kind of things that you are giving your time to and and what you're focusing on the, the problems that you're creating for yourself that don't really need to be there chelsea i'm really glad you're okay and that you're safe and you're back with your family and your friends this is an incredible experience you've had i'm sure it's one you'll never forget i'm grateful to you for sharing it with our audience today thank you Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me on and thanks for making the time for me. Um, and I would just like to say to everybody else that 
that is impacted by um, all the tragedies going on in BC right now. I hope that you're able to stay safe um, and close to loved ones. And and um, and my heart is with everyone struggling right now, no matter whether it's uh, physically, emotionally, or mentally. I just I send you my love, and and I I, I hope that this is easy soon. Thank you, Chelsea. Thanks, Mike. Have a great day. On Friday, the federal authorities approved the use of the Pfizer vaccine for children aged 5 to 11. Now, what happens, though, if the parents disagree about whether their children should receive this vaccination? Already hearing reports of parents who are divorced or separated clashing over this. What if they have different points of view or different opinions about whether their kids should be vaccinated. Well, the vaccine is approved now for use in Canada. It will be available in British Columbia. Here is Health Minister Adrian Dix talking about the timeline for the vaccine for kids in BC. It will be arriving the middle of next week. I would expect you'll start to see um, doses go out uh, the beginning around the week of the November the 29th uh, as it's distributed around the province. I think uh, it's very exciting news. Everyone wants to know, and lots of people have been asking me this morning, well, what can I do? How do uh, parents have been asking this question? And it's pretty simple. Right now, get your children registered. For children and for parents, get registered. Okay, what happens, though, if the parents disagree about vaccinating their kids? Maybe divorced, maybe separated. This could be a, a tough one. Let's discuss now with my guest, Martina Milau, family lawyer, with Clark Woods, LLP. Very pleased to welcome her. Hi. Hi there. Hi, Mar- Hi Martina. Thanks. Thanks a lot for doing this. So let's talk about this now. Are you hearing, are you hearing, any, uh, uh, hearing about this already from potential clients calling you saying like, wow, what happens if I, my ex uh, doesn't want to get the kids vaccinated or vice versa? I mean, this, that sounds like that could be a problem that's obviously going to come up. Well, what has come up already is um, the vaccines rolling out for the 12 to 17-year-olds, um, you know, several months ago. Um, and that resulted in quite a bit of uh, litigation between separated or divorced parents where they disagree. Um, it hasn't, uh, I haven't come across this for 5 to 11-year-olds. I suspect it's going to be a similar kind of problem uh, that people are going to be facing um, but I will say that, you know, the, the judges, um, are not going to assume or purport to know more than the medical professionals and experts. So, um, I think if you're in the general population and your child is, you know, just a healthy average kid, um, you're going to have a problem if you disagree and you're anti the COVID vaccine, um, unless you can come up with some really good solid medical evidence that says that your particular child should not be vaccinated. Right, and so, I haven't seen that. Okay, so if this one, if something like this ends up in front of a judge, let's say you have divorced or separated parents, they've got, they disagree on the vaccine for the children. Is this, is that a dispute that could potentially end up in a, a legal fight in front of a judge in court? Oh, sure, of course. And I, I mean, there are cases across Canada that have already litigated um, in the case of 12 to 17-year-olds. And 100%, if you don't have, um, so separated parents um, sometimes have, actually often have some kind of parameters around who makes decisions. So ordinarily, both parents have input into a decision like this. Um, and if they don't agree, 
um, often they can go and ask a judge, refer the decision to a judge or a master of the court um, to decide for them. And then that is binding on the family. Right. But when you have a, like a public health order, as you mentioned, we're, we're in the midst of this pandemic, your, your opinion is what a judge, a judge would likely side with the parent who wants their kids to get vaccinated. Correct. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. To do otherwise would to basically uh, supplant the judge's opinion for, um, you know, it, or, or for, to do otherwise would effectively reject what the public health people are saying, and they are the experts. I don't think a judge is in a position to do that. Right. Um, what, if, what if a parent, what if a parent goes in front of a judge and says, well, wait a second, my child is immunocompromised, or I've read some studies that say that the vaccine could potentially uh, be dangerous, or, you know, is a judge going to be swayed by that, or they could they start wading through medical evidence in court? Uh, well, if, they, if somebody brings speculative evidence that says, there are some indications that this may pose a problem that is speculative. Um, what the judge is going to be looking for is a medical person to be providing a qualified opinion on that particular child. So if those are the hard cases where the child has some kind of medical vulnerability or some kind of history that um, makes them more susceptible to allergies or whatnot, but you're going to have to still come to court with a doctor's opinion saying for this particular child, you need to be cautious or you need to not vaccinate. Now, I don't know, those have to be looked at fact by fact and what kind of opinion they come to court with in terms of medical opinion. Right. How about the, the law in British Columbia as it relates to parental authority over vaccinations? Like for kids of this age, do, they, do you require the consent of the parents in order for a child to be vaccinated? Or can a child, because there's a mature minor uh, rule in British Columbia, right, where a child can be vaccinated potentially over the objections of their parents. Isn't that right? That's right. That That is. I I would be surprised to see if it could be applied by a seven or, you know, if that could be invoked by a seven or an eight year old. Yeah. Eleven, we are getting close to um, a minor potentially being able to consent to the vaccine. Um, that would be an interesting case to see, uh, to see. But I still think that if a child wanted to be vaccinated, against the parents' objections. And somehow there are um, agencies that, that can act for children in these cases. Um, I suspect the child's wishes would overrule that of the parents because it would be consistent with the public health um, order or the public health uh, uh, recommendations. Yeah. Speaking to Martina Milau, family lawyer, Clark Woods, LLP, what would be your advice to parents who end up in a situation like this where you have two parents, maybe divorce separated, who disagree over the vaccine for their children? I mean, I don't know. It seems kind of heartbreaking to me that something like that would end up in court in some sort of bitter fight in front of a judge. Like, would you recommend that parents try to work this out among themselves or maybe through mediation outside of a courtroom? Well, I mean, first of all, I think they need to get some legal advice on what would be the outcome. If, if, if one person strongly disagrees with the other, they should both get some legal advice. Any legal advice that is responsible and competent is going to tell them, look, you're likely to lose if your child is an average child. Um, once they do that, I mean, yes, it's, it's great if parties can come to some agreement, but this, this particular issue is extremely emotional and very hotly being debated right now. So I would be surprised if people who are staunchly opposed are going to reach agreement. But yes, that is the ultimate best case scenario for the, every family. Yeah. Is if they can do that. 
Right. And how about like other issues related to COVID when it comes to co-parenting or, you know, jurisdiction over, over kids? Because I'm just wondering about, let's say you've got one parent who maybe is not vaccinated or has some anti, anti-vax beliefs or, and maybe that's concerning to the other parent. Have you heard of any cases where you have divorced or separated parents who are worried about the children, the kids' welfare when it comes to COVID and vaccines generally? Oh, absolutely. That was um, just had a, had a, had a, just a spurt of litigation at the outset of people. Um, let's say what, there was an exposure in one home, um, so they right. wanted to quarantine with the child. And then the other parent w- went to, to, you know, would litigate that and say, I, I want my son or daughter back. Or the parent doesn't want to send the child to the other household because they have vulnerable family members living with them and the other household isn't vaccinated. Um, that, yes. And I say those were litigated quite a bit, and it always came down to sort of looking at um, who, what is the public health recommendation, which family is doing it, um, if you send the child back and forth, um, who does that pose a risk to, um, and ultimately if people chose not to be vaccinated and that was a, enough of a concern in terms of all of the factors to consider, then they may not have their parenting time for a period of time. Let's talk about this remarkable story now surrounding Chinese professional tennis player Peng Shui, 35 years old, highly ranked doubles player. She disappeared from the public eye for nearly three weeks after she made sexual assault allegations against a senior minister in the Chinese government. She has now been seen in public again, but still concerns out there around the world over her safety and her well-being. i got USA Today columnist Daniel Walken standing by here to discuss. First, have a listen to this report now from NBC News correspondent Raf Sanchez. Missing Chinese tennis star Peng Shui speaking out for the first time in a 30-minute video call with Thomas Bach, the president of the International Olympic Committee, on Sunday. The IOC saying that Peng is safe and well, adding she appeared to be relaxed. The IOC did not provide NBC News a copy of the video. It's Peng's first known contact with anyone outside China since she disappeared three weeks ago after making sexual assault allegations against a former senior Communist Party official and comes hours after Chinese state media released videos allegedly showing her at a tennis tournament this morning. She smiled for the cameras, but said nothing. A similar video put out last night showing Peng at a restaurant with her coach and friends. NBC News has not independently verified the footage. The IOC call doing little to ease fears. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest Daniel Walken, national columnist with USA Today Sports. And he wrote a terrific column on this story. Daniel, thank you for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it a lot. This is such a strange story. I mean, I don't think a lot of people trust what the, the Chinese regime is saying about whether this, this woman, this tennis player is safe and about her well-being. But now we've had this uh, rather remarkable video conference between herself, this tennis player, and the head of the International Olympic Committee. Is that making the controversy go away now or where are we at with this thing now? Well, I think they'd like it to go away. Uh, yeah. I think at least it seems to me and to a lot of people that maybe they're trying a little too hard. 
the video of her at a restaurant that came out over the weekend. There was a video of her at a junior tennis tournament. It, it looked a little bit forced. I mean, who, you know, who videos people in a restaurant, you know, and, and she's sitting there with somebody, and I don't speak Chinese, but people who, who do say there was a, you know, conversation very emphatically talking about the date. I mean, it just, it looked a little staged, you know, to be totally honest. Yeah. And um, it's, it seems like what the Chinese government is trying to do is assure people she's alive and hoping that that's going to be enough to just have the story kind of die down and go away. And, and you know, we have short attention spans generally, and, and, you know, people kind of move on after a little while. So that seems to be the goal here. Uh, the video with the IOC, I, I think, was very um, off-putting to a lot of people because it looks like the IOC is just laundering this propaganda uh, and the IOC, as we know, is hosting a Winter Olympics in Beijing in a couple months. Right. So I don't know where this goes from here, but uh, the Chinese clearly were responding to public pressure, to international pressure by releasing this video. But what comes after this, uh, I don't know exactly. Yeah, no, it's really, really weird and unusual. And I certainly agree with you about the apparent motivations of the international olympic committee like you said we've got the olympics coming up in beijing uh there was already rumblings of maybe some countries might want to might boycott the beijing olympics then this controversy comes along so you've got ioc president thomas bach apparently speaking to this tennis player for 30 minutes on sunday but i don't believe they they did not release the audio or any kind of transcript of this conversation, correct? I mean, it looked like all I saw was this. Did they release any of the video of what she had to say on the video or no? Not that I've seen, no. Yeah. I think it just was kind of some still photographs and things like that. Again, this is choreographed and staged to try to get people to move on, uh, but they were answering questions that nobody was asking. That That was the thing that really sort of made it uh, strange and, and off-putting is we know she's alive now. That's certain, seems to be certain. Yes. The question is, what is, is she being coerced to do something? What is the, you know, how is the government uh, responding? Is she, you know, moving about of her own free will? Well, that's another matter, and that's not something the IOC has addressed at all. No, exactly. It it almost it almost seemed like almost like a hostage video in in a way. It just it just it just not fully reassuring uh, to a lot of people. Speaking to Daniel Wolken, a columnist at USA Today, about the Peng Shui case. So, what about the World Tennis Association now? And it's been really interesting to see uh, the Women's Tennis Association speaking up about this case and and clearly not happy with this and. Even after the release of this IOC video uh, from the International Olympic Committee, the Women's Tennis Association doesn't seem to be convinced that this tennis player is okay. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, they, they want, what they have wanted is, first of all, to be able to talk to her. Yeah. Um, second of all is they want an investigation into, that's what, you know, this is what they've said, they want an investigation into her claims of sexual assault. And 
you know, I, I, I don't think <laughs> I don't think that's very likely to happen. And I think they know that that was not likely to happen. But by throwing down that that gauntlet, I mean, it really does sort of put the the women the women's tennis association at a crossroads with um, the Chinese uh, government, and that's a big deal because women's tennis has, has had a very uh, profitable relationship with China. They've hosted you know nine tournaments there uh, before the pandemic in, in 2019, including the uh, tour finals, which is a huge, huge money event. So um, they've learned over the last couple of years because of the pandemic how to operate without China, and maybe that's where they're just going and moving ahead on this thing. But it certainly uh, was was a very strong response given the sort of weakness of the way people typically respond to the the ability of China to pressure, coerce, and censor. Yeah, it really is interesting to see them take a stand. Uh, maybe unlike some other sports organizations, it seemed to be a, a lot more deferential to, to China. Daniel, we've just got one minute left here. Uh, the Olympic Games are approaching in, in Beijing next year. I mean, do you think that the Olympics in, are are, are uh, vulnerable to a boycott here, especially after this? I, I don't think so. I, I think the days of boycotting the Olympics are probably over. I mean, there's going to be a diplomatic boycott, which just means that, you know, the official government delegation will not attend. But I, I think the idea of pulling the athletes out or not allowing athletes to go, that I think I just don't think that's realistic anymore. Um, right. There's just sort of too much invested in, in the Olympic movement. Daniel, thanks for your take on it today. I really appreciate it. All right, thank you.